Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. What the hell is going on in the Fulton County Jail? Ten inmates have died. Death sentence? Somebody is responsible for this inhumane death. Why are so many people dying in jail? The walls are crumbling down. Inmates are creating shanks out of the walls. The conditions and their stories will shock you. He's eating his feces and drinking his urine. Why are you still allowing him to be there? Where was the phone calls to the family? Then, black doctor shortage. We definitely have a crisis taking place in this country. Why are the numbers of black doctors dropping? And what does it mean for our medical care? If I was white, I wouldn't have to go through that. This is how black people get killed. And I'm talking to the incomparable Halle Bailey. I know you know, because mm-hmm. we friends. Right? But... Why she's in rare air doing what few black women have ever done before. When you hear your name compared to the likes of those icons, how does that feel for you? Honestly, I'm like, no way. What the <laughs> heck? All that and more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Mara Escampo. Getting arrested should not be a death sentence, but for many who find themselves behind bars, it is. Every year, thousands of people die in jails where many haven't even been charged of a crime or convicted. The Fulton County Jail in Atlanta is fast becoming infamous for its high number of deaths. Since last year, when LaShawn Thompson was found eaten to death by bed bugs, 10 more people have died there in custody, which has us asking, WTF is going on in the Fulton County Jail and in jails just like it all across the country. In the heart of Georgia, a chilling pattern is emerging at the Fulton County Jail. In 2023, 10 detainees have died while in custody at the holding facility. What the hell is going on in the Fulton County Jail? This year, 10 inmates have died in that jail. The latest death, 24-year-old Chandre Delmore. On April 1st, Delmore was arrested for burglary and willful obstruction of law enforcement. In August, an officer found him unresponsive in his cell during a routine check. Attempts to revive him were delayed. Uh, until emergency medical services were present. Um, There were deficient uh, equipment available there to revive Mr. Delmore. He was taken to Grady Hospital, where he died just three days later of cardiac arrest. I can't even understand getting a phone call saying he's in ICU. I wasn't expecting to see my son in the condition that he was in when I came out here. 
and I want answers. I want to know what happened to my son. And she isn't the only one searching for answers. The family of Noni Batiste Kosoko is demanding answers after the 19-year-old was arrested for a misdemeanor and mysteriously died in police custody. When you have a situation where there's been a history of suspicion, and now there's a lack of information, that's why we're here. According to her mother, Noni suffered from an unspecified mental health issue, and the family was not even made aware of her arrest until she had been missing for several days. We don't know if she saw any medical professionals or mental health professionals while she was detained at the jail. We don't know if they, if she saw them and they gave her any help. We, we just don't know. And, and that's really, uh, quite honestly, frustrating. By July, she was dead with no answers and no explanations from Fulton County. LaShawn Thompson is a human rights violation. And Revolt Black News brought you the story of LaShawn Thompson, who was eaten alive by bed bugs in the Fulton County Jail. Somebody is responsible for this inhumane death. His family recently reached a $4 million settlement with the county. We got to get justice for LaShawn. We got to get accountability. Yes. We got to get to the truth. The jail itself is deteriorating. The number of jail deaths took center stage at a recent Fulton County Board of Commissioners meeting where one inmate detailed the jail's horrific conditions. The walls are crumbling down and inmates are getting creating shanks out of the wall so you can go inside of the wall and get you a knife. But things heated up when Sheriff Pat Labatt suggested shipping inmates to other facilities in Georgia and Mississippi, a solution that would cost the county more than $30 million. This is about the third time that the sheriff's office has come down here, not with not giving us information ahead of time to ask us for a boatload of money. I'm not here to play with you. I don't even play the radio. So you can figure this out, or you can run for share. Try that one out. Unlike those in prison, people being housed in jails typically have not been indicted or convicted of a crime. For many, posting bail is the only thing standing between them and home. Critics question the ethics of the cash bail system and keeping nonviolent detainees in jail simply because they can't pay. Some people um, that are in custody cannot afford to make cash bails. And even on low-level misdemeanors, uh, the cash bail may be uh, exorbitantly high. Everybody that's in the Fulton County Jail, with the exception of maybe 5% of the population that are in the process of being shipped out to the Department of Corrections, are pretrial detainees, many of which are only being pretrial detained because of their inability to make bail. This inability to afford bail puts inmates at risk of violence, neglect, and abuse. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, local jails are becoming increasingly more dangerous, with a more than 5% increase in deaths since 2018. When you are in a jail, you should not be the custody of the state. You are just detained until there's a determination of whether or not your liberty will be permanently deprived. Many times, uh, certain um, pretrial detention facilities receive funding based on the number of bodies that are currently being kept and housed in these facilities. So there is a, a fiscal benefit uh, to this carceral state. And, and so when we look at the original intent of the system, we have to make sure that it is operating the way it's supposed to. 
And while the national spotlight is on Fulton County Jail, they are not unique in this alarming trend. Across the country, jail deaths have been rising at an astounding rate. In September, nine Memphis jail deputies were charged in the beating death of 33-year-old Gershon Freeman. Sebastian County murdered my brother. And in Arkansas, 55-year-old Larry Price Jr. starved to death after spending more than a year in county jail. He had a mental health crisis. He went in there and he um, cried for help. Instead, he, he was thrown in jail and, and the key was thrown away with him. They said that he was given food daily, but I'm like, well, how do you let someone diminish from 185 pounds to 121 pounds? I mean, you're telling me that he is psychotic. He's eating his feces and, drink, and drinking his urine. Why are you still allowing him to be there? Price, who suffered from severe schizophrenia, was locked up for a felony charge of making terroristic threats. His bail set at $1,000. Even more tragic, Price needed only $100 to post bail. I didn't know anything about a $1,000 bond until it was actually reported in the newspaper multiple times. My aunt went down there. They were turned away. When we called, they said that Larry had to put his name on the list for us to make any contact with him. But my thing is, where were the phone calls? Where was the phone calls to the family? The number of deaths in the Fulton County Jail has triggered alarms at the federal level. We are here today to announce that the United States Department of Justice is launching a civil investigation into the Fulton County Jail. Just days after the death of Noni Batiste Kosoko, the FBI launched a federal investigation into the jail, citing its pattern of constitutional violations, including violence, filthy conditions, and excessive force by jail officers. But for the families of those who have died in the Fulton County Jail and in detention centers across the country, the federal investigation is too little, too late. There's no way they could be taking it as seriously as they should because the jail is still opening and functioning the way that it is. I mean, this is a death trap. That's where we are right now. When we come back, we're asking, why are more and more people dying in local jails and detention centers? And what will it take to stop it? Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The recent deaths in Atlanta's Fulton County Jail are bringing new questions about the safety of the local jail system, where many haven't even been convicted of a crime. I sat down with Keith Taylor, adjunct assistant professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and Dr. Topeka Sam, founder of the Lady of Hope Ministries, as well as Gerald Griggs, president of the Atlanta NAACP, and it was an eye-opening conversation. Thank you all for being here. I appreciate you for joining me for this conversation. Gerald, I'd like to start with you when talking about Fulton County Jail specifically, because what we've seen here seems especially terrible. In one week last year, there were two people who died on the same day. Then we hear these terrible stories. For example, this man being eaten alive, allegedly, by bedbugs. Why are things so bad at the Fulton County Jail? 
and I think that's the ultimate question, um, and that's why we've been investigating through the Atlanta NAACP and the Georgia State Conference, because we want to know why the conditions at the jail have deteriorated such that we are seeing death after death after death. It's very concerning, and honestly, we can't answer the reason why, so that's why it's incumbent upon our elected officials and our investigators, as well as law enforcement, to answer these questions. Well, you know, we said in the intro, a lot of people who are in jail have not been convicted of a crime. In Fulton County Jail, almost half haven't even been indicted, let alone convicted. So who is responsible for oversight, and why are things like this allowed to persist? Well, any jail, uh, the oversight falls on the sheriff. The sheriff is in charge of the jail to keep the conditions and to make sure uh, that the individuals that are being housed there are um, properly being fed, properly being treated, have proper medical uh, facilities. And so ultimately it's the sheriff, but then also it's the county commission who funds uh, the, the facilities of the jail. And so those are the individuals at the top uh, that have to be uh, uh, asked these questions, these important questions. And Topeka, I would love your perspective on this because you have firsthand experience with the criminal justice system. What are some of the conditions like in jails around the country? I mean, for one, you know, people being put on lockdown. You know, we've seen recently again where, you know, we've talked about pe people being uh, locked in their cells for 23 hours a day is inhumane, right? That's happening all over the place. You know, the lack of fresh and clean water, um, access to taking showers and having proper hygiene products, um, visitation, being able to see your family and how your family is being treated while you're going to visit. Um, being able to work um, and have a livable wage. You know, being paid five cents an hour for a 40-hour work week is slavery. And Keith, you know, a lot of people point to the cash bail system as the problem, because as Topeka just noted, why can't they await their trial dates at home or in some community space? But you actually think the jails are helping make the community a safer place. Why? Jails serve the purpose of keeping individuals who might commit harm to others or or themselves from the uh, local communities in which uh, the crime the alleged crimes have occurred let's be clear they are pre-trial detainees there are citizens who are being held on an accusation and the purpose of the pre-trial detention uh, should serve uh, to either rehabilitate the individual or, or mitigate the potential uh, harm to the community. But now there are progressive states that have tried to reform the cash bail system. New York State is one of those. That's my home state. And we've also seen an increase in crime in recent years. Now we don't know if those things are related because crime is a very complicated problem to unpack. But there are people who say, well, if you eliminate the cash bail system, you're going to see an increase in crime. And there are also people in the community that say, given the, the nature of the crime, I may not want that person back on the streets, whether they're convicted yet or not. The fact that they have been arrested for X, Y, Z, I want them locked up until their trial. How would you respond to that? The only people that determine crimes are judges and juries, not the police. So I have a problem when they're saying crime is going up, but there haven't been subsequent trials. So the arrest may be going up, accusations may be going up, but actual crime is not, and actually is going down. An individual is innocent until proven guilty in front of 12 citizens or a judge, but continuing to arrest people and putting them in jails actually makes you less safe because at some point they're going to get out. And if there's no remediation, if they're being treated uh, inhumanely, they are going to internalize that and then they're going to vocalize and act out once they get out. Uh, Keith, how much does it cost? 
to house these inmates? And is there a financial incentive that leads to overcrowding and that leads to, you know, these dehumanizing conditions? Well, in New York City, it costs about a half a million dollars to have a, a, an individual incarcerated. We're paying too much. We're paying too much. Uh, Topeka, you work very closely with a lot of women who are formerly incarcerated and are rebuilding their lives. And so you see firsthand really how this affects people's lives, especially women who are in many cases mothers. So it's not just affecting them, it's affecting their families as well. What would you like to see as an alternative to jail? You know, what I would like to see more of is community engagement. You know, the Correction Association of New York is there because it is oversight of the New York State prisons where you have a body outside of the prison system, not just the wardens, the directors, the sheriffs. And I keep saying people who are in your custody and in your care because it is the responsibility of those who are now having the oversight for this new community that they've chosen to work in and be a part of to take care of the community that they are now serving. You know, when you are incarcerated, um, you have rights. We're going to have to leave it there. We could talk about this much longer, but thank you all for your perspective. I appreciate you being here with us. But Keith, Topeka, and Gerald, thank you for your time. Coming up on Revolt Black News, is the lack of black doctors in this country killing us? That's coming up next. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's. Wait, you gonna be my surgeon, Dr. Andrews? I sure will. Are y'all two gonna be with him? Yeah. My lucky day. Three doctors of color taking care of me. Doctors who won't talk down to me. Welcome back. Culturally competent care. It's a big new buzzword, meaning that black people are healthier when the people taking care of us understand, relate, and frankly, look like us. It's not hard to understand. Everybody deserves a doctor who hears you. The bad news is that over the last 40 years, the number of black doctors has actually gone down, even as the black population has grown. And that could be contributing to a medical crisis. I was in so much pain from my neck. My neck hurt so bad. It's a story that's all too common. This woman, Susan Moore, deathly ill with COVID, begging for help. If I was white, I wouldn't have to go through that. And even though she herself is a doctor, her pleas about pain were dismissed by the hospital, Indiana University Health in suburban Indianapolis, and the doctor who took care of her, Dr. Eric Bannock. I've been in pain since seven. It was another two and a half hours before I got the pain medicine. She believed it was all because she was black. I had to talk to somebody, maybe the media, somebody, to let people know how I'm being treated. This is how black people get killed. Just weeks after Dr. Moore posted this video, she died from her COVID complications. I think there's so much distrust among the black community for healthcare in general. And we have a lot of history. We come by that distrust pretty honestly. 
Dr. Stacy Mitchell-Doyle, a board-certified internist, has been practicing medicine for more than 20 years. I spent um, almost 25 years in emergency rooms and ICUs and seeing how Black patients don't get the testing that other patients get. They come into the emergency room specifically with things like chest pain and serious medical conditions. And they're more likely than not are going to be sent home because the doctor who's treating them has some unconscious bias and doesn't really believe them or doesn't take their, um, their symptoms seriously. As a black doctor, I'm also a black patient. I've run into those same things. I've gone to doctors and have not been heard. So intuitively, I've always felt that Black patients do better with Black doctors. In April, a study found that Black people live longer in areas with more Black doctors, which raises the question, why don't more Black people go to Black doctors? Unfortunately, there simply aren't enough to go around. When you look at the distribution of physicians, it's pretty disturbing. Dr. Wayne Frederick is president emeritus of Howard University and a practicing surgical oncologist. We definitely have a crisis taking place in this country, and that crisis has only been impacted um, only very recently. The numbers are stark. While Black people make up roughly 13% of the population, the percentage of Black doctors stands at only 5%. And in the last 40 years, the numbers have been declining. Research from the New England Journal of Medicine shows that in 1978, black men accounted for 3.1% of the medical student body. By 2019, that figure dipped to 2.9%. Uh, just a few years ago, some 80 to 90% of all the black dermatologists in this country either attended Howard or were trained at Howard University Hospital. And you think of one institution taking on that kind of a responsibility for the whole country, that's problematic. On average, becoming a doctor takes 10 to 14 years of school and leaves graduates with nearly $200,000 of debt. I spent 13 years preparing to be a surgical oncologist. And so it's a lot of time that gets put in where you're nutting off certain life decisions for longer. And those who make it through still face a journey with plenty of racist roadblocks. The assumption is not that I'm a doctor um, when I walk into the room. A lack of black representation in the medical field leads to racial bias among some white patients who refuse to see past skin color when seeking treatment. You may be practicing in a facility where you're one of, um, you know, two or three look like you. There have been instances where I've gone into a patient room in the hospital only to be asked, where's the real doctor? I've experienced that many times. Where's the real doctor? I've even had someone refuse my care. Such unfortunate incidents were dramatized on Grey's Anatomy. I'll wait for a different doctor. A different doctor? You mean you want a white doctor? Out of the 170 medical schools in the U.S., only four are historically black. Meharry in Nashville, Morehouse in Atlanta, Charles R. Drew University in Los Angeles, and Howard University in Washington, D.C., creating a self-fulfilling loop. A lack of black medical schools leads to a lack of black doctors, which leads to a lack of role models for young black men and women, which leads back to a lack of doctors. There are a lot of black men who don't even know that this is an opportunity that they should aspire to. Right. Because they've never seen a black male physician. I don't have nobody in my family that's a doctor, so I want to step up and hopefully I can help people that's in need. 
Dr. Frederick says Howard University is working hard to fill the gap by finding students from underserved circumstances who are willing to work in underserved communities. They get to expand on where they want to practice medicine and why, and who they want to treat and why, and so on. And I think that helps give students an opportunity who otherwise wouldn't get an opportunity. There are other reasons to be hopeful. Last year, the number of first-year black students increased by 10.5% nationwide. A recently introduced bill seeks to provide $1 billion in funding to help young doctors of color. And billionaire Michael Bloomberg donated $100 million to help alleviate medical debt for black physicians. What we've done with that money is to decrease the debt of each student that qualifies by $100,000. And that has been transformative because we're now seeing students taking bigger risk because they have less debt. Following Dr. Moore's death, an independent review panel recommended IU Health begin comprehensive diversity training for all of their staff. We can't let you know our white physicians off the hook. They have to learn some cultural competency. They have to learn how to in, you know, improve their bedside manner because black lives are going to be affected by this. And that's the only way that it, it, you know, people are going to change their behaviors is if they know they're under the microscope. Put it under the microscope. But real changes in healthcare for millions of black people in this country won't come until there are more black doctors to care for them. The ultimate way to fix the problem is, you know, representation matters. You have to get more black doctors. Every time I get a patient who's like, I've never had a black doctor, I'm like, girl, welcome to the family. Now you do, because, you know, this is how, this is how we're going to do it. And I, it, it makes such a big difference. When we come back, we're switching gears. Hallie Bailey is here, and she's on the road to doing what very few black women have ever done before. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. talk about her conversation with Hollywood's newest leading lady. Hey, Kennedy. Hey, Mara. That's right. Halle Bailey as the Little Mermaid blew away the box office and stole our hearts. The movie's blockbuster success made her Hollywood's newest it girl and a bona fide movie star. She stopped by Revolt to talk to me about everything from her solo career to her relationship with her sister Chloe to what she thinks about being compared to the most legendary women in entertainment. She makes it look so easy. Always poised on the red carpet, proudly posing at each premiere of The Little Mermaid, from Hollywood to London. But what Halle Bailey has accomplished at the age of 23 is nothing short of remarkable. Critics say this role will undoubtedly make you a movie star. How does it feel to hear that sort of praise? It feels amazing to hear that sort of praise, honestly, because, you know, this has been a long journey, a long time coming. I auditioned for this film when I was 18, and I'm 23 now. A man was drowning. I had to save him. This obsession with humans has to stop. 
she is the first black actress in Disney history to portray Ariel, rocking her real locks in the film. I want to talk about the importance of showcasing our natural hair in film and television. Yes. Why was that so important for you? Wow. Well, I know you know, because mm -hmm. we're friends. Right. But when, <laughs> when I was little, I've had my locks since I was little. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our crowns are like really important to us, especially as black women. And I felt like that was a piece of me, of Hallie, that I was bringing to this new Ariel as well. Mm -hmm. But it's so important for us to be able to see that because as children, as babies, as anyone, when you look and you can see somebody that's similar to you with your hair texture, it's so beautiful when you're like, wow, I see myself in this person. But it's more than just making history. Hallie is going from music star to movie star, and from one half of the duo Chloe and Hallie to just a solo star. She is also just one of a handful of black women who have successfully made the leap from teen star to adult movie star. It's Dorothy Dandridge, Beyonce, and Diana Ross, to name a few. When you hear your name compared to the likes of those icons, how does that feel for you? Oh, wow. Honestly, when I hear my name compared to them, I'm like, no way. What the <laughs> heck? Because those women I look up to so much yeah. and are a big reason why I'm even here today. You know, they were the ones who broke down the doors and barriers yeah. for me to be here. So it means a lot. Hallie grew up in Atlanta, one of four children, including older sister Chloe. The two of them shot to fame as the music duo Chloe and Hallie in 2015 after Beyonce discovered their covers on YouTube. Just another stage, pageant the pain away. Hallie was just 17 at the time. Just with the crew, we ain't out here looking for boo. Some nights be better with you. Five years later, Beyonce presented them with the Rising Star Award at Billboard's Women in Music. Ladies, I am so, so proud of you. You've done this with authenticity, with grace, with raw talent, and you managed to shine in every room you enter. She and her sister also branched out into acting, playing twins on the blackish spinoff, Grownish. Oh, will try this on a strict no-carb diet this summer for training. Mm -hmm. Respect the bitch. Mm -hmm. But The Little Mermaid is the first big project Hallie has tackled on her own. It was truly a transition for me because I had never done anything like this before. Yeah. I'm used to singing and performing and yeah. being on tour and on stage is my comfort zone. I'm like, okay, I can do this. I'm like, I'm just gonna ride this wave, do this all my life. And yeah. then this came along and I'm like, whoa, okay, do mm -hmm. I have it in me? Can I do this? Talk to me about how you navigate kind of these big career and lifestyle transitions, but make it look so seamless. My sister helps me through everything in my life. Out of the two of us, I'm the baby sister. Mm -hmm. So parting away from her when I had to go film this movie was like, oh my gosh, this is so new. I've never done this. I miss my right arm. Yeah. And you know, she was there for me every step of the way. We'd FaceTime every single day. And you know, she's been a, one of my big champions to be like, girl, mm -hmm. you can do it. You get your wings and fly. When you were getting ready to make that transition from recording artist to 
movie star. Was it hard for people in general to see you in that different light? Was it hard for directors to see you in that different light? Did you feel like you kind of had to prove that you were ready for that next step? Absolutely. I think with anything, when you enter kind of a new field that you've never been in before, mm -hmm. people are kind of looking at you like, okay, let's see what she got, you know? Because I've never done this. So for all I know, I could have been terrible. <laughs> Today, our teacher talks about a place called Africa. She say our mamas come from Queens over there. If her next film is any indication of where her career is going, Hallie could be well on her way to a career similar to that other Hallie who recently tweeted that she's honored to share a name with the very talented and super sweet Hallie Bailey. Later this year, Halle Bailey will co-star in the remake of The Color Purple, co-starring Fantasia and Taraji P. Henson. And they all became like my aunties and just so kind to me and lifting me up. And Fantasia's an angel. She's an angel inside and out. And I cannot wait for people to see her performance because she is a star. It was just iconic. I mean, I was just a fan on that set and grateful that I could be in the midst of this amazing, beautiful black cast. I can't wait to see Hallie in The Color Purple later this year. And if you haven't seen The Little Mermaid yet, or if you just want to see it again, The Little Mermaid is streaming now on Disney+. I love me some Hallie Bailey, and I'll definitely be front and center to see The Color Purple. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Before we go, there's one more story we want you to see. The Howard University men's swim team just won the NEC Swimming and Diving Championships. Talk to me about the Sports Illustrated article and how it felt when that came out. First off, when I saw the picture, I was like, Y'all look good. <laughs> I was like, my teammates look really good. Yes. Um, they look like, you know, we're about business. I was just proud. It's different hearing it and being on the team, but it's mm -hmm. also different seeing it. Seeing is believing for 20-something mid-distance swimmer Madison Freeland, who along with her fellow teammates and siblings, Luke Kennedy and Zaylee Elizabeth Thompson, boast bison pride. They are part of the team to dominate in a sport where only 1.5% of competitive swimmers in the United States are black. 
How does it feel for you guys to be the only all-black swim team at some of your meets in these spaces where, you know, we've been historically shut out? Um, honestly, it sometimes it is even a shock to us because, you know, we see each other every day, we train, um, we're always around people that look like us, and then we go to a big competition and we're getting stares, we're getting looks. Mm. We're the only people who look like us and we're like, what, wait, what? Like, what's going on? Um, but honestly, it's just like being that representation, being that person that someone else or a younger girl or boy can look up to and be like, why, I, I wanna be like them. A team about representation and debunking the history and the myth when it comes to black people and taking to the water. Talk about where society's perception of that comes from. What's the history there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's honestly a group effort. I'm a part of a, a huge team of people and, and um, movement of people that are a part of this team and that are really trying to work on making sure that people don't buy into the myth because it is just mm -hmm. that, that black people don't swim. Um, our ancestral heritage proves that we were swimmers. Nicholas Askew is Howard's director and head coach of men and women's swimming and diving teams. How are you and your team showing up unapologetically black in this sport that has historically kind of kept us out? Being the only HBCU that has a swimming and diving program, a lot of our swimmers come in looking for this type of environment because the heavier percentage where our swimmers and divers came from areas and programs that they were the drastic minority. According to the USA Swimming Foundation, it is estimated that nearly 64% of African-American children have no or low swimming ability, putting them at a higher risk of drowning. That's compared to 40% of white children. Access was also denied to us. Because, All white pools. Exactly, and, and even to the point where white people started moving out of the city. They started moving into the suburbs and now pools became private and membership only. And Howard isn't the only HBCU making history as a first, taking non-conventional sports to another level. When Fisk came out with the first HBCU gymnastics team, I knew that I wanted to be a part of it. To be able to like have 15 other girls who look like me share the same connections as me, it's just super cool. One, two, three. Freshman Morgan Price is part of Fisk University's Power 15, leaping into history as the first ever gymnastics team repping a historically black college and university to compete at the NCAA level. Out of the pool and away from the mat, black athletes have historically faced major hurdles to break through in sports where black people were shut out. After the fanfares of the Olympic opening comes the most amazing performance by America's black streak, Jesse Owens, in the 100 meters. The world's most superb runner makes the others look as if they're walking. From Jesse Owens' Olympic gold win at the Berlin Games in 1936 to tennis champ Althea Gibson's historically cracking the door open in the face of racism. It remains a challenge for black athletes wanting to take part in unconventional sports. My name is Kareem Rosser. I'm a polo player. Take Philly polo player and athlete Kareem Rosser, who's swinging through in the equestrian sport. Being honestly the only black face in the crowd, it is intimidating at times. Uh, I wanted to come back here, you know, and show the, the little boys and the little girls, you know, this is what life could be like when you work hard and you're determined. You know, half the tournaments I go to, I'm like looking around to see if anyone in the country is looks like me, you know? <laughs> 
Standing on the shoulders of Althea Gibson and even tennis legend Arthur Ashe, Venus and Serena added to the increased visibility of black male and female players we see on the court today. Growing up, you know, and playing these tournaments when I was younger, I didn't play a lot. I didn't really see a lot of people that was my color. So I think I just got used to it. And then when you go like to Russia or, you know, a lot of these countries, <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, it, you just really kind of stick out. And from the let at the net to the swing on the links, the issue of race was always something young Tiger Woods faced on his journey. Every time I go to a major country club, always feel it, you can always sense it. Um, people are always staring at you. What are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. He proved he belonged on the golf course with his complete domination of the game. The return to glory. We can desegregate schools. We can desegregate our public golf courses. In the film Playing Through, golfer Ann Gregory changed the game in Gary, Indiana, becoming the first black female to play in the U.S. Golfing Association. I'm going to play my game one hole at a time. Because of the time period in which she was playing, and, and we're talking about 40s, 50s, and the 60s, in the sport of golf as a black woman in that time period, um, it's just a story that I think didn't make its way nationally or internationally in the way that you've seen some other athletes. Although she was a contemporary of Joe Lewis and Jackie Robinson and Althea Gibson. Gregory's granddaughters, Piper Overstreet White and Lori Overstreet Squire, say her place in history was a game changer. She took it all in stride and, you know, she wouldn't let it get her down, but I'm just going to keep on plugging. And, you know, eventually she broke those barriers. As black athletes continue to break new ground, one thing is clear at Howard, the bison are basking in their history while continuing to break barriers. What's your guys' message to other young black swimmers? Honestly, you can do it too. Listen, um, we came here thinking that, oh wow, we're actually in a collegiate sporting event. But being able to come to Howard, you know, Howard sets the tones for all HBCUs, and being able to swim at a Division I collegiate level is an opportunity that is close to none. And being able to represent not only ourselves, but other people in our community and minorities, it's just a blessing, honestly. Well, that wraps it up for us. Remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, X, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download the Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone.
If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.